Good evening. The son of Marcos on the verge of winning the presidency of the Philippines. Sri Lanka's prime minister resigns as rioting grips the nation, the island nation. Schumer brings an abortion law to vote. What's next for Russia in Ukraine? Anti-communism day in Florida and a rocket to space for a New York City teacher. Is Jeff Bezos using space to win over New Yorkers to Amazon? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. The son and namesake of ousted Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos has taken a commanding lead in an unofficial count in the country's presidential election. With more than 70 percent of the vote counted, Marcos Jr. had more than 23 million, far ahead of his closest challenger, the current vice president. The next president is likely to hear demands to prosecute outgoing president Rodrigo Dortete for thousands of killings during his anti-drug crackdown. Simon Marks has more. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is the son of the late Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. His main opponent is the daughter of outgoing strongman President Rodrigo Duterte. Marcos Sr. was elected in 1965, imposed martial law in 1971, and was ousted only in 1986 after stealing fortunes from the country's treasury. It's not yet clear whether his son is cut from substantially different cloth. Jim Lindsay is with the New York-based Council on Foreign Relations. I think a lot of people are worried that Marcos harbors the same authoritarian leanings as his father. Marcos Jr. has solidified his family's relations with a number of the other leading families in the Philippines. Marcos's campaign has also been helped by rampant disinformation, a whitewashing of what his father did when he ran the country. Marcos has also suggested that uh, he's not going to shine a spotlight on some of the unseemly things that were done under the Duterte presidency, particularly the vigilante drug war. The U.S. is worried Marcos is vowing to move Manila closer diplomatically to China, raising fresh questions about the future of the U.S. security pact between Washington and the Philippines. Simon Marks reporting. And the Irish Nationalist Party Sinn Féin has one of the largest numbers of seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly for the first time. With almost all the votes counted from Thursday's election, Sinn Féin secured 27 of the Assembly's 90 seats. The historic win means Sinn Féin is entitled to the post of First Minister in Belfast, the first time since Northern Ireland was founded as a Protestant majority state in 1921. Sinn Féin's longtime policy goal has been a united Ireland, and the party has long been associated with its armed wing, the Irish Republican Army. But unification was on the back burner as high inflation dominated voter concerns. And protesters in a key trade group in Sri Lanka called for a new government to take control of the country today. The president asked for calm following clashes that claimed eight lives and prompted his brother to quit as prime minister. Laura McCann Isherwit reports. Sri Lanka has been experiencing economic turmoil with shortages of medicine, food and fuel, as well as power blackouts. Mahinda Rajapaksa will step down just days after his younger brother, Sri Lanka's president, encouraged him to do so. In a tweet ahead of the announcement, he urged the public to exercise restraint amid heightened tensions. Laura Macon issue with reporting. 
After a severe economic downturn, the public's patience ran out Monday after ruling party supporters attacked an anti-government protest camp in the commercial capital, Colombo. Protesters angered by persistent shortages of fuel, cooking gas and electricity defied a government-imposed curfew to attack politicians, setting ablaze homes, shops and businesses belonging to ruling party lawmakers. And Cuba's president, Miguel Diaz-Canel's administration, has said the accident at the hotel, the popular hotel, the accident was caused by a leak from a liquefied gas tanker truck recharging a tank at the hotel, one of Cuba's most popular. The hotel had no guests at the time of the accident, but 51 workers were inside preparing for reopening on May 11th. Built in 1880, the hotel known as the Saratoga had been operating as a hotel since 1911. The five-star luxury accommodation is located on the Paseo del Prado Avenue in downtown Havana, let me go on to more national news here in the United States. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer filed cloture today, cloture yesterday, ending debate and moving to a vote in the United States Senate on a law making abortion rights a law. That's happening tomorrow. The vote is a reaction to the leaked draft decision indicating the Supreme Court is poised to overturn its landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. A few days ago, Leader McConnell himself acknowledged that a federal ban on abortions is now possible should the Supreme Court overturn Roe and Republicans take control of the Senate. Let me say that again because it is so dreadful. In light of the Supreme Court's decision, upcoming decision, Leader McConnell acknowledged that a national ban on abortion is now possible without Roe. If Republicans reclaim the majority, hear that, America? A total ban, a total national ban on abortion, stated by not any Republican, but by the Republican leader. Every single American needs to hear what Leader McConnell said. For years, for decades, Republicans have tried to disguise their hostility to abortion by claiming that all they really want is to let the states decide for themselves how they'll treat the issue. It's an old claim from the right. This is about states' rights. This argument has always been hypocritical, and Leader McConnell's comments make it perfectly clear why. The game here is not about states' rights. The goal has always been a national ban on abortions altogether. States' rights is a smokescreen Nothing more than a distraction, a ruse, to hide from the true claims of the hard right of the MAGA Republicans. A national ban on abortion. Uh, that's uh, Chuck Schumer, Senator Chuck Schumer. Meanwhile, pro-choice activists want New Mexico to follow the lead of Connecticut and some other states in providing a safe haven for abortion providers. After last week's leaked draft that indicated the Supreme Court will overturn legalized abortion nationwide, Pacifica's Roz Brown reports. Janet Williams with Santa Fe's National Organization for Women says more protections will be needed as people travel from Texas, Arizona and other states to New Mexico where abortion is legal. She says medical records will need to be protected and abortion providers will need protection from liability in other states. Like Texas trying to criminalize women and doctors and anyone that helps a woman, we'd like to try to protect them. So make our state a sanctuary state just like Connecticut. In Texas and more than 20 other states, lawmakers have passed a so-called trigger law that would go into effect 30 days after Roe versus Wade is overturned, making performing abortion a felony. 
The Texas law also offers a bounty of $10,000 to citizens if they win a court case against anyone who has helped someone gain access to an abortion. Assuming the Supreme Court's ruling stands, Colorado and New Mexico will be the only two places in the Southwest that provide abortion services. Williams expects new clinics to open in the state, but also expects to see more fake clinics or crisis pregnancy centers, which she says look like real health centers, but don't provide abortion or broader health care. They're setting up in communities and drawing people in who are pregnant and don't want their pregnancy and talking them out of abortions. But they set up with a name that sounds like they're going to help you, and they're not. The director of a Mississippi abortion clinic at the center of Roe versus Wade says she's considering a move to New Mexico if the 1973 ruling is struck down. The Jackson Women's Health Organization, better known as the Pink House, is the last abortion clinic in Mississippi. This is Roz Brown, New Mexico News Connection. And the leak of the, uh, pardon me, and the leak of the draft decision written by anti-choice Justice Samuel Alito has roiled the court and added fuel to the simmering conflict between pro and anti-abortion forces. But it's not the only leak concerning the White House. Last week, the New York Times reported a leak claiming United States intelligence services helped Ukraine's military kill or wound several Russian generals and may have helped Ukraine target Russia's most important warship, the Moskva, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We're certainly not suggesting anyone break any laws. I would note that the president's view has long been, and I tweeted this earlier this morning and repeated and made a number of these comments last week as well, that uh, violence, threats, and, and intimidation have no place in political discourse. Yes, we are a country that promotes democracy, and we certainly allow for peaceful protest uh, in a range of places in the country. None of it should violate the law. No one is suggesting that. Uh, and it should never resort to violence, to threats, to intimidation in any way, shape, or form. And, of course, that was the wrong clip, but it was from the same press conference and related to the uh, um, to the uh, SCOTUS, to the Supreme Court of the United States' uh, draft decision that was released. Uh, Jen Psaki was, relating, was uh, uh, telling us that uh, her call or the president's call that there should be uh, protests at the uh, homes of members of the Supreme Court was not a violation of law and was within the um, – uh, the free speech guarantees of the United States Constitution. Uh, she also, in the same uh, in the same uh, press conference, referred to the leaked information that the United States had helped Ukraine kill Russian generals and helped Ukraine target uh, Russia's warship, the Moskva, saying that uh, the U.S. had in fact not done that and that the intelligence was gained by Ukraine on its own. And in more news from the war between Russia and Ukraine, Ukrainian officials said today the Russian military fired seven missiles at the strategic port of Odessa yesterday. One person was killed and five wounded. In Washington, Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines told the Senate the war was at a stalemate. Haines added that President Vladimir Putin appeared to be preparing for a long conflict and a Russian victory in the Ukraine's eastern Donbass region might not end the war. A month or two of fighting will be significant as the Russians attempt to reinvigorate their efforts. But even if they are successful, we are not confident that the fight in the Donbass will effectively end the war. 
We assess President Putin is preparing for a prolonged conflict in Ukraine, during which he still intends to achieve goals beyond the Donbass. We assess that Putin's strategic goals have probably not changed, suggesting he regards the decision in late March to refocus Russian forces on the Donbass as only a temporary shift to regain the initiative after the Russian military's failure to capture Kyiv. And his current near-term military objectives are to capture the two oblasts in Donetsk and Luhansk with a buffer zone, encircle Ukrainian forces from the north and the south to the west of the Donbass, in order to crush the most capable and well-equipped Ukrainian forces who are fighting to hold the line in the east, consolidate control of the land bridge Russia has established from Crimea to the Donbass, occupy Kherson, and control the water source for Crimea, that is to the north. And we also see indications that the Russian military wants to extend the land bridge to Transnistria. And while the Russian forces may be capable of achieving most of these near-term goals in the coming months, we believe that they will not be able to extend control over a land bridge that stretches to Transnistria and includes Odessa without launching some form of mobilization. And it is increasingly unlikely that they will be able to establish control over both oblasts and the buffer zone they desire in the coming weeks. But Putin most likely also judges that Russia has a greater ability and willingness to endure challenges than his adversaries, and he is probably counting on U.S. and EU resolve to weaken as food shortages, inflation, energy prices get worse. Haynes also said the fight was developing into a war of attrition in the next few months will be more unpredictable with a growing potential for escalation of the conflict. Transnistria is a Russian-controlled region of a small nation called Moldova on the eastern border of Ukraine. In related news, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said yesterday the Pentagon's ability to send weapons systems and other equipment from Defense Department stockpiles to Ukraine will run out in about three weeks. The Pentagon has about $100 million left of a $13.6 billion aid package passed in March. We believe that uh, between what the president just announced Friday and the 100 million that we still have left, and we're going to be working that in real time with the Ukrainians, um, uh, that that will get us to about the third week of this month is what we're, we're pretty much anticipating, uh, which is why we, uh, uh, we continue to, to urge Congress to, to pass the president's supplemental request as soon as possible so that uh, we can continue to provide aid to uh, Ukraine uninterrupted. So um, we think with what we got left, that'll get us through most of this month in, in, in terms of uh, future packages and future material. But, uh, but that's why we're urging Congress to, to act quickly. Pentagon's spokesperson, John Kirby, congressional Democrats are preparing a plan that would boost President Joe Biden's requested $33 billion Ukraine aid package to nearly $40 billion. And a House vote is possible as soon as today. You're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In more national news, public school teachers in Florida will soon be required to dedicate at least 45 minutes of instruction on Victims of Communism Day to teach students about communist leaders around the world and how people suffered under those regimes. Today, I am signing HB 395, which will officially designate November 7th as Victims of Communism Day to honor the more than 100 million people who have fallen victim to communist regimes across the world.
And that's Florida Governor DeSantis. Florida is one of a handful of states who adopt the designation and the first mandating school instruction on that day. Florida Republicans have seized on education policy, placing school curriculum at the forefront ahead of the 2022 midterms. The law requires teaching Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong and Fidel Castro, as well as poverty, starvation, migration, systemic lethal violence and suppression of speech endured under those regimes. A second bill would name streets in Miami after several Cuban-American business people with ties to the GOP and an anti-Castro Cuban activist who died in 2012. In recent weeks, DeSantis, a potential candidate for president in 2024, has signed a law banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools or any other curriculum DeSantis claims teaches uh, teaches children about white uh, what the uh, role of uh, white people or white children about the impact of slavery. And you may remember that billionaire electric car maker Elon Musk uh, has made a bid to buy the social media giant Twitter. Musk announced today if the acquisition goes through, he would reverse Twitter's ban on former President Donald Trump. He was being interviewed at the Financial Times Future of the Car conference. I don't own Twitter yet, so this is not like a thing that will definitely happen, because what if I don't own Twitter? But my opinion, and Jack Dorsey, I want to be clear, shares this opinion, is that we should not have perma-bans. The point that I'm trying to make, which is perhaps not getting across, is that banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat-out stupid. The South African-born Musk also talked about his ambition to make Tesla the world's largest car manufacturer. And Elon Musk is not the only billionaire with a huge ego. Amazon's Jeff Bezos is also in the running. Bezos also owns the spaceflight company Blue Origin, famous for hurling various celebrities and other super rich into suborbital, suborbital spaceflight. At a benefit for Robinhood, the New York City-based charity that operates shelters for unhoused persons, the company donated two seats on its new Shepard rocket for a buy-one-give-one auction at the nonprofit Robinhood's annual benefit for New York City, with the second seat going to a city teacher. An $8 million bid by hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin brought that into play. That means a New York City teacher will get to ride to the edge of the cosmos. But WBAI labor reporter Robert Henley says Mayor Eric Adams is unfairly helping the Amazon founder who's been facing stiff opposition to unionization uh, by union organizers in New York City. The question of scarcity when it comes to social services. It's one of these things where we have philanthropies in the city. They're organized and, and are necessary for great fortunes to endure. People have to arrange this kind of nonprofit foundation as a wealth preservation and accumulation strategy. To maximize this, they are hailed by political leaders. Eric Adams certainly is an example. We saw it very much under Michael Bloomberg. To some degree, we saw it under Bill de Blasio. Rather than have these individuals who are the top 0.1% or 0.001% of holders of wealth that have made out so well, during the pandemic at the tremendous disadvantage of tens of millions of essential workers, they give back, quote unquote, in the form of like this $100 million Robin Hood grant that is the subject of our conversation today, which is dedicated to worthwhile things and nonprofits like childcare. Certainly, it's a good thing that wealthy people provide support for childcare. But the deeper societal question is, what kind of world would we have if these folks just paid 
their taxes based on the vast wealth that they have. Just to give you an example, according to the nonprofit Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, about $5.2 billion in corporate federal income tax in 2021, while reporting record profits of more than $35 billion, 75% higher than its 2020 record haul, and paid, quote, just 6% of those profits in federal income taxes. So if Amazon had no tax breaks, it would have paid 21% of its profits in corporate income taxes or just, you know, more than $7.3 billion. So this is all part of the strategy. Now, in this instant we have with um, Mary Adams, the nice wrinkle, and you just have to take your hat off to how smooth these people are. This is involved the Bezos Foundation. They're going to provide two seats on a Bezos spaceship for two public school teachers. Isn't that nice? Meanwhile... Do they come back? Uh, very funny. Of course, in a perfect world, I date myself. I wish it was the 60s. Wouldn't it be great if no teacher would take a ride? But I'm sure in this decrepit point of late stages of uh, vulture feudal capitalism, there'll be a line of people that just can't wait for that opportunity to validate a system that is trying to crush a union. Anything you like to add to that? I would recommend the salon piece because I would recommend the salon piece because I consult with James Henry, who's an international corporate tax expert who points out the fact that these boards are very successful at getting people who are great institutions. And it's all because on board is J.B. Garlic, a someone that was appointed during the Clinton administration under Janet Reno, big D Democrat. That's how it's done. You put these people on the board and then they leave their conscience at the door. The report on Amazon's tax avoidance is available at the website of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy at IE, uh, pardon me, ITEP.org. Bob Henley's article, Taking the Amazon Union Back Against Higher Immorality, is at Salon.com. Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket launches from the company's private facility in West Texas and flies to about 340,000 feet, where the crew experiences about two minutes of weightlessness before returning to Earth. Past celebrity passengers, including Included Star Trek actor William Shatner, who plays Galaxy Gallivanting Captain James T. Kirk on the series. Meanwhile, Amazon has fired two employees with ties to the grassroots union that led the first successful U.S. organizing effort in the retail giant's history. The company confirmed today it fired Michal or Matt Kuzik and Tristan Dutchen of the Amazon Labor Union on Staten Island, New York, but it claims the cases are unrelated to each other and related unrelated to whether these individuals support any particular cause or group. As in quotes, Kuzik, who's the one that voted to unionize last month, says he was fired due to COVID-related leave. He said he was informed by an agent from the company's employee resource center that he was allowed to go on leave until April 29th, but was later fired because leave period extended only until April 26th. Celebrity chef Mario Batali was found not guilty of indecent assault and battery today following a swift trial. Batali waived his right to have a jury decide his fate. The case centered on allegations he aggressively kissed and groped a Boston woman while taking a selfie at a bar in 2017. Boston Municipal Court Judge James Stanton agreed with Batali's lawyers that the accuser had credibility issues and that photos suggested the encounter was amicable. Pictures are worth a thousand words, he said. But the judge also had stern words 
for the former star of shows like Molto Mario and Iron Chef America. The defendant didn't cover himself in glory on the night in question. Stanton said his conduct, his appearance, and his demeanor were not befitting of a public person of his stature at the time. Batali is among a number of high-profile men who have had faced a public reckoning during the Me Too movement against sexual abuse and harassment in recent years. And in regional news, in another loss for state Democrats, a federal judge in Albany today affirmed the decision by a state judge to move the party primaries for the state Senate and U.S. House of Representatives to August 23rd after the lines drawn for both chambers by state lawmakers were ruled unconstitutional. The order from U.S. District Court Judge Gary Sharp rebuffs a Democratic-backed legal challenge in federal court, which had sought to use the congressional maps drawn by New York lawmakers earlier this year. Those maps were found to be in violation of the state's constitutional ban on partisan redistricting. And finally, the New Jersey State Supreme Court today ruled that Sundiata Akoli, the former Black Panther who has been held captive for the past 49 years, may be released from prison. He was found guilty for the May 73, May 1973 shoot and sentenced to life plus 35 years. Akoli first became eligible for parole 29 years ago. On each occasion that came before the panel, he was his release was denied. Akoli, whose given name was Clark Edward Squire, was involved in an encounter with Foster and another state trooper, James Harper, on May 2, 1973, after the car he was in was stopped on the New Jersey Turnpike for a broken taillight. He was traveling with two other members of the Black Liberation Army, Asada Shakur and Zaid Malik Shakur. Shakur was also killed in the shootout that ensued. Akali was one of the one of at least 12 former members of the Black Panthers and their armed wing, the Black Liberation Army, who are still in prison. Many are now approaching or exceeding half a century between bar, behind bars. The narrative of the 1973 shooting remains unresolved. After her arrest alongside Akoli in 1973, Asada Shakur escaped and fled to Cuba, where she's been granted asylum by the Cuban government. She remains on the FBI's most wanted list as a domestic terrorist, that's their words, with a $2 million reward on her head. I would consider her a freedom fighter. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. The news is produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Richie Johnson from New York City, the home of many freedom fighters. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.